Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Chris Donaldson. Chris is an adventurous man with a motivation that drove him to embark on a journey of self-discovery. It started in 1979 when he left Belfast. He originally planned a motorcycle ride to Australia, but didn't make it. Instead, the obstacles took him to the peak of the Andes before he returned to Belfast. 42 years later, Chris is now again on a ride to Australia on the same Moto Guzzi Le Mans that took him on his first adventure. He decided to finally complete the journey, but in stages, and then he will continue to North America to complete the round-the-world voyage. I love stories about adventures, as we all need to have ours. I feel privileged that Chris is sharing his story and that his experience is still in progress. His latest trip is called Adventures Before Dementia. Chris is also the author of his book, Going the Wrong Way, that explains in more detail his first adventure that started in 1979. So let's enjoy his story. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited that you're here. I love stories about traveling, and that's your exciting story to share. That's right, yes. Yes, I saw your husband was a... And I have a traveler in this day as well. I listened on your earlier podcast. Yes, that was a long time ago that my husband had that experience. But yes, we tried to travel. I think you have been way more adventurous than we are. Well, I've been around, let's say, I've been around the block, as we say in Belfast. Yes. And so when does your story start? Well, I guess it starts in Belfast. I was brought up in the, uh, Belfast is a sort of an infamous past. I was brought up in the 60s and 70s in Belfast. Went to school in the centre of town in the middle of the Troubles. Difficult enough upbringing, although we uh, didn't know any better, so we thought it was normal. All the bombs going off and people getting shot and so on. But it was a place I was keen to get out of all the same. What did you decide to do? Well, whenever I was at school, I read a story about a... I think it was actually a lady who'd driven around the world in a motorbike. And I, as kids do, got fixated about this notion. And thought I wanted to ride the motor to Australia from the UK on the motorbike. From Australia to the UK? From from the UK to Australia. Wow. How old were you when you read that story? I was probably about 15 or 16, so I hadn't even got a motorbike yet. So that was the first thing I had to do when I was 16 and old enough to get a motorbike and get my test at 17. And then I left school, went to university, and I planned to leave after I finished my studies, which was in 1979. After you finished university? Yes. So it was 20, 21. And what did your friends, your family say about that? Well, I think my friends and family thought it was mad. They thought I would never make it. Thought it would be back in two weeks' time, you know, because we really didn't know much about what was outside the UK in those days. Pre-internet, you didn't have as much information coming at you from all around the place. So what you got was from books, which were obviously out of date before you got them. I'd been riding a motorbike for a while, but I never heard of anybody, just this one woman who did it and never was heard of again. So there's very little to go on apart from 
what uh, research you could get from guidebooks and maps, buying maps and trying to plan ahead as best I can. But I had a fair bit of planning done by the time I got ready to go. And what was your route exactly? Well, the idea was really to ride to India. In those days, even now, you can't get past Burma or Myanmar, as it's called. So the road would be through down through Europe, France, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Yugoslavia, as it was then, to Greece, and then Turkey, Iran, Pakistan and India, and then take a boat from India to, to Australia. The plan was to get to Australia and work there for a while and see how I liked it, maybe stay for, for longer, who knows. At that stage, to the gods sort of thing, uh, possibly go around to the USA and back to, back home, going around the world. It was a sort of dream. So you left from Belfast? That's right. I left from Belfast in October 79. I got as far as London and was having a great time in London with some friends and getting visas and getting all my passports stuff I needed for the bike. And then leaving the first week in November, and I think it was the 4th or 5th of November, 79, the Iranian students took over the American embassy in Tehran. So that basically stopped all my plans because I couldn't ride east any further. But I'd left home and I knew my parents and my friends were sort of expecting me back in two weeks. So I was determined not to go home again. Yes. So the only place I could go was south because it was November and Europe was getting cold. So I decided to go to Africa for somewhere else to go to. Go to. So I rode down through Europe, stopped and got snowed in Austria for a week. Typical sort of 21-year-old had forgotten it was going to be snowing in the winter in Austria, but in the Alps, snowed in a blizzard there, but eventually made my way to Greece and met up with a young Scots guy in, in Athens. We decided to make a detour to Israel. Israel and Egypt had just signed a peace treaty, so we thought we'd be able to get a boat from there or sort of to drive from Israel into Egypt and further and then continue south from there. But the biggest problem was, I suppose, that all my plans had been to drive to India and all my route maps and so on and so forth. And I really no no idea what was going on in Israel or Africa at all. So I was just heading into the unknown. And as you were going to each of these countries, where how long were you in each country? Well, it just depended. The idea was to stay for a couple of weeks in Israel, which would we drove to the southern border with the, with Egypt and they wouldn't let us across because although there were a peace treaty signed, they hadn't opened the border as such for tourists or for travellers. So we had to come back from there. We couldn't get into Jordan. So Israel was still an island as such. You couldn't drive out of it again and we couldn't get into Syria. So I ended up taking a boat back to Cyprus and then another boat to Syria, to Syria, which is in the middle of a sort of civil war, which has been going on pretty much ever since, which is pretty scary. And then drove through Jordan and down to Alat, which took about two weeks. And the annoying thing about that, it's from Alat, you can see across the bay to or to from, to Aqaba, you can see across the bay to Alat in Israel, where it was two weeks ago. I had to drive about a thousand miles to get basically two miles away across the border in a different country. Uh, but it was in an Arab country at that stage, so I could then take a boat to Egypt, finally get to Africa. You didn't find any challenges language-wise, uh, financial-wise? The nice thing about speaking English, I suppose we get very lazy in most places because most of Europe and the, most of the Middle East, it's the first language they would use. But it's always a problem in the poorer areas of communication. And driving a motorcycle, you're you're on your on the road. You're, you can't just go into an airport and fly off. You are stuck there. The motorbike is it's a great form of transport away because it keeps you in contact with population what's going on and people interested in motorbikes they'll stop and they'll talk to you but it does restrict you because you can't just fly off and get out of trouble if you need to so it's your backpacker you can just disappear much easier but motorcycle you're, you're stuck with the land routes so as i say i was only 21 so i was just learning as i went along totally knew what, what was happening i hadn't done any history any research in israel and egypt and the this trouble and strife between them so it was very much a, a sort of coming of age i didn't realize it at the time but it was for myself for my personality the way i thought it was coming age difference between 
growing up as a kid and discovering myself being independent and a very, very shock dog tactic as well because you're places like Israel, which has been wars at that stage, uh, very much out of my comfort zone. And you communicate with your parents at all? Again, in those days... Seems like it's a long time ago. Post-internet and pre-internet's made such a big difference to everything. Yes. Communication was obviously much more difficult. I would have rung home every two or three weeks, possibly. Okay. I remember in Egypt ringing in Cairo. It was in Cairo at Christmas Day. I rang home and I got quite depressed listening to my parents all having a party at Christmas Christmas dinner and I was stuck in a hot, smelly phone box in Egypt trying to pay about five pounds, I think, which was probably about 50 quid these days to make a five minute phone call. So communication was difficult to non-existent. And in fact, I think it annoyed me so much and made me so homesick, I suppose. Yeah. I decided not to phone home again for a while and I didn't phone home until I got to probably Nairobi, which is a couple of months later. So probably quite difficult for my parents as well because they didn't know where I was or what I was doing. How long were you planning your trip versus how long it really was? Well, money was one of the big, big problems because I was planning to spend maybe two, three months to ride a motorbike to Australia and then get a job there. Whereas as it turned out, I was away for a year and a half. <gasps> wow. So I was traveling on a shoestring. I did get a bit of work in the States and around the place in between times. That was probably one of my biggest issues was was finance. And against that, once you get out of Europe, once you get into Africa, everything's much cheaper. Petrol was maybe 10p a gallon compared to whatever it was in, in Europe at that stage. You're living like a local, you're living in a local, sleeping, staying over in a local two-star hotels and cockroach infested hostels. So you're it is easier to make money go further, but... It was obviously one of the biggest problems I had and always a big worry because I was driving on a motorbike. If anything went wrong with a motorbike, would I have enough money to fix it? Or if, if I had an accident, I'd be stuck. That was my life savings, if you like, was in the motorbike. The idea was to get to Australia and then sell it. And then it would give me the money to travel on. But as I say, I got to Egypt around about Christmas Day, found my way in the pyramids, gave the security guards a couple of pennies and pitched their tent at the foot of the pyramid of Cheops for the for three or four days, which is uh, quite awe-inspiring to stay in a 4,000-year-old building next door before it was such a touristy place. Yeah. I was there about five years ago, and it was like it was like Disneyland with all the tourist buses and stalls and people selling things. It was so, so depressing compared to what it was the last time I was there. I can imagine. So at that stage, I started to realize that it's a very unusual way of traveling, what I was doing, because I didn't really know where I was going or what I was going to find along the way, whereas... Especially nowadays, when you go traveling, you know where you're going. You have a route planned. You've got all your hotels, booking.com and Airbnb. Google Maps tells you where to go and what you're going to find and how long it's going to take. Whereas what I was doing was the complete opposite. Didn't know where I was going. Didn't know what countries were between me. I went down through Sudan. I actually drove off, off the edge of my map till I could find somebody coming the other way to give me a map. Really, didn't know Uganda and yeah, other African countries were further south. So it was it was a nightmare in a way, but it made a much more exciting trip because it was traveling like a hobo, just traveling for the sake of traveling rather than traveling to get to a destination. Yes. From which country you entered Africa and which country you left? So I entered Africa through Egypt, Port Suez, and then made my way to Cairo, headed south, following the Nile down to Aswan. Where you have to take a boat over to Sudan. And the main problem with Sudan, there's no roads at that stage. My bike was a very much a road bike, a sort of boy racer type road bike, Motogazi Le Mans, which is not made for crossing deserts. It took about a week to cross maybe 300 miles of desert, so it was quite slow going. Convoy with half a dozen other guys, different assorted vehicles. Sudan in those days was poor country, very hard to find petrol, even though they're sitting on fast reserves of neither. They've discovered oil there, but in those days you could hardly get a gallon of petrol. 
So it was a diff- difficult place to cross, very hot, very backward, especially in the south. You'd have driving through villages with really African natives and they're cooking in pots and fireplaces, living in, in the jungle off, off, the, off what they called or the hunter class of the hunter-gatherers, I suppose. So it really was like stepping back into time. And then from Sudan, you went to where? Sudan, I went down through Uganda just after Idi Amin left. So it was in a state of, well, they were, let's just say they were between civil wars at that stage. They just had a war with Tanzania and they were about to start a civil war with themselves. So that was a bit of a scary place to be. Yes. I can imagine. And, and so from Tanzania, I'm following you in the map here. Yeah. <laughs> Tanzania was nice. And then I ended up in a place called, it used to be Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. It was just at the transition. They just finished their civil war as well. Africa was a real mess in the 70s because they just was post-colonial days. Yes. Colonial countries had left and they were sort of fighting for power. Very brave of you. Well, it wasn't really, it was more stupid, really, because I didn't really know where I was going. So I can't actually claim, can't actually claim to be brave, unfortunately, because you, bravery, I think, deserve, you have to know what you're doing to be brave, brave you know. <laughs> and it was most possibly the beauty of that was the fact I didn't know where I was going. If I had known, I probably wouldn't have gone there. But it's also much experience to meet the people. And So you went all the way to South Africa? All the way to Cape Town, yeah. And from there? Well, from there, there's a bit of a dead end because Cape Town, South Africa was in the middle of apartheid. So there's a lot of countries weren't doing anything, weren't talking to them, weren't traveling or visiting. So there's very few uh, places you could travel from. But I managed to talk my way into, onto a place in a yacht race that was coming through from Cape Town up to Rotterdam. Although I'd done very little sailing in my life. One of the guys in one of the boats had got uh, broke, broken his leg. So I was able to get his place at the last minute. A boat from there to Holland? All the way to Holland. And the beauty about that, that one of the sponsors for the race was a shipping company called Nedloyd. So I had to decide what to do with the bike. And I spoke to the guy and he said, well, we'd ship it for you. So I said, well, where do you go? And they didn't go to Australia, but they went to America. So I got it shipped to Los Angeles. Uh, so after I took the boat to Holland, which took about five weeks to get to Holland, I flew over to Los Angeles, continued my travels around America. Wow. I went up to Vancouver. Really? Where you are, yeah, 40 odd years ago. Beautiful city. I drove across Canada to Ottawa, which is a long way, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> and then decided, well, if I'm north, I may as well go to south. So Set my sights in South America. Uh, stopped in the States for a few months. Did a bit of work to try and replenish the, col- the, the, the wallet. Had a great time and spent too much money when I was earning it. But toured, so toured around the States, went down to Florida and then followed the, the coast around to Mexico. Three hundred years into Nicaragua, just after the Sandinistas had taken power. More familiar with that side of the world. You're from Venezuela, is that right? Yes. Yeah, I didn't go there, but I went down to, to Panama. Uh-huh. And then we got a hitched a lift on a, a cargo plane to Median. So you had to take a plane, obviously, right? Because there's no other way. Yeah, you can't, can't drive through the Darien Gap. It's the only part of the North and South America you can't get through. So we, we never quite worked out what the plane was. The plane said they were flying potatoes from Median to, to Panama, which was a bit of a long story. I'm sure there was something else that we were flying up in those days, I think. <laughs> Maybe it was public Picasso's hometown, so... It was a bit of a dodgy spot too. We got out of there pretty quick. But a beautiful country, we drove through Colombia into Ecuador, Peru. And then unfortunately I got caught hepatitis or something in Peru. Made my way, got up to Bolivia and Machu Picchu and got sick, very sick. So it was really a difficult time because I ran out of money because I couldn't travel anymore. I ran out of time. Uh, I had to spend my money staying in a hotel. But I managed to get some money sent home 
and decided I had enough. The bike at that stage was about falling apart as well. So I got a train to decide to go to Buenos Aires in Argentina. From Bolivia, a train? Yeah, oh. which didn't go well because we got about a couple of hundred miles in the rains and washed the tracks away. So we threw <laughs> off the train. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine what the roads are like, the dirt roads are like. If the if the railway train's been railway line's been washed away, the roads are pretty pretty bad as well. Wow! So a couple of breakdowns and made it way through Argentina, which was in late. Well, that was eighty one, which is in the middle of the uh, Galtieri. I think that's the present those days. So it was a bit of a nervous place to travel through as well. But I ended up in, in Buenos Aires. Funny enough, got to Buenos Aires. I was ill. I was got off the train and too tired to go anywhere else. I just lay down on a, on a bench in the platform. And I woke up, little did I know, but somebody had seen me sleeping there in the morning and they'd been, uh, one of her friend had been in Peru two months previously and I told her about some guys from Britain who were in a motorbike and one of them was sleeping in the station. Now, Buenos Aires is a huge city, as you know, it's maybe 10 million people. So by luck, she actually recognized me from a story that her friend had told her. She, Angela came down and saw me sleeping in the station, woke me up and was able to take me home to put me up in her, with her parents. So it's quite nice little end to the trip that somebody had met along the way was able to just coincidentally, I mean, a 10 million to one coincidence, was to take me home and look after me just when I needed looked after as well, because it was still pretty sick. Uh, but Chris, you left the bike in Peru. No, I couldn't leave it there because it was a customs document, a customs carnet, what they call a carnet. You have to have a document to bring the bike in and you have to take it out again. So I was able to borrow money to get it shipped home where it sat for a few years and then I restored it and got a job and went on with normal life the way most people do. And 40 years later, if you've heard of Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, Ewan McGregor's a film star who's made a couple of movies about riding motorbikes around the world. A couple of years ago, he was going to ride up South America. So I thought I'd better just write my story because there seemed to be a bit of interest. And when I saw, I heard the stories of these guys traveling with groups of people, they were very much a different type of journey than what I, than, than mine. So I wrote a book and self-published it a couple of years ago. It's called Going the Wrong Way. I mean, the journey itself made a huge difference to my life because it was transformed the way I was thinking about the world and life in general and how I went about work and family and everything else. But since I've written the book, it's brought me back into motorcycling. I kept the motorbike as a souvenir, I suppose, and over the years I've had different motorbikes and cars, obviously. It's always sat in the garage as my the one I went around the world. It went, well, I didn't go around the world and I went up and down the world on it. So called it's a motor guzzi, it's an Italian motorcycle. Uh, and whenever a friend of mine read the book, he said, Well, that's interesting. You never actually got to Australia. You went everywhere else in the world apart from Australia. Why not have another go to get to Australia? So I said, Well, okay, if we're gonna do that, I'll take my old bike and I'm an old guy and I'm sixty-four and you you're a young guy and you can get a new motor guzzi and we'll see how the old guys do against the, the new ones. So I took the original bike, which is now forty-five years old. And we set off last September for Australia. Now I've got married, we've got a couple of kids, one still at school. So I can't just disappear for months and end. So what we've done, we've cut it into segments. So we go away for two weeks, travel, then park the bikes up and then fly home, go back to work and say hello to the family and earn enough money to go a wee bit further. So we went down to Greece, left the bikes in Athens. And the motorcycle community is very... Uh, friendly around the world and we were able to meet up with Monoguzzi clubs in, in Athens and they were looked, looked after the bikes for us. Came back in November last year and flew to, we flew to Israel, originally intending to go from Israel into Jordan and then Jordan into Saudi and through Saudi to Dubai. 
but it was a bit of a deja vu experience because I got to the Jordan border and they wouldn't let me through. <laughs> so the second time in 40 odd years, I couldn't get out of Israel again. So we went back to Athens. It was nice to go to Israel and see, met up with the guy I'd stayed with 42 years ago. Wow. I hadn't seen or heard of him since. That's incredible. So we were able to catch up with him and have a few beers and talk about what's happened in the last 40 odd years of our lives. And then we got back to Athens to leave the bikes there again and take the route from Greece into Turkey and then to Iran and Pakistan and east that way. But unfortunately, um, Liam decided he didn't want to go any further. He had enough of it. So he came home and left me on my own, which wasn't what I'd planned, but gave it a bit of thought and said, well, I think I can manage this on my own. I suppose one of the reasons I decided to go as well is two, three years ago, I got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Pretty mild form at this stage, but I thought it was... Uh-huh. It'd be a challenge for me to to do something like this to show I'm still young and fit enough to do what I I could do when I was 20. But it was a bit of a I had to stop and think whenever Liam decided he bailed out of the trip. Could I cope on my own? Could I manage difficulties and the travel and the problems that you always come across in third world countries, especially on a, a motorbike and at this stage a very old motorbike, which. Uh, had already been around the world already, but um, I flew back last uh, March to Athens and decided to go on my own. I'll, I'll continue on. That leg was going to be to give myself two weeks to get from from Athens to to Dubai. And the first problem I had in Athens was they got out of Athens and we, there was a blizzard. I'm not sure if you know Greece, but it's every time I've gone to Greece, it's been beautiful, sunny beaches. It's like Florida. It's like the Mediterranean. It's sunshine. Yes, that's that's what we think of Greece. But the, the freak, I don't know whether it's global, global warming or what's going on, but it was the first, the coldest weather they've had in Greece from living memory. There was blizzards and snowstorms. So drove from, from uh, Athens to Thessalonica and then to Istanbul, where I got stuck in another snowstorm in Istanbul again. You don't expect Turkey to be snowed in. Again, a deja vu experience in 40-odd years ago, Snowden in, uh, in Austria. I thought this is not going well because I had so many problems last time. I'm going to have the same same sort of hassle. Luckily, it warmed up after that. I think the coldest it got to was minus 11 in, in Turkey. But it never stops raining here, but it never goes below about minus 2. So it was pretty cold. In the mountains in Turkey, we drew, crossed over into Iran and came down into the, the desert from the mountains. I think it went from minus 11 to plus 40 in a, two days travel. So it was quite a... So and this is last year? This is just last year. Yeah, last year. So you, you've been trying to get to Australia? Yeah, well, about a month ago, I got across Iran into Dubai, left the bike in Dubai. And then in November, I crossed Iran just before the troubles started again, Pakistan, and then made my way into India. So left the bike in Nepal, flew it to Australia. So the bike is now finally, after 43 years, made its way to Australia. <laughs> and I'll be planning to join it in the new year, in March. So the, the bike made it before you? It's going to be probably the longest journey around the world that anybody's ever made. Yes. For at least 43 years after we set off to go to Australia, we'll make it there. <laughs> so this journey, I'm calling it, I don't know if I'll write a book about it, but it'll be, if we do, it'll be called Venture Before Dementia. That is a very original name. So yeah, it's it's amazing how a journey you made when you're 21 can still be influencing your life 40 odd years later. You are an adventurous guy always, so that's never going to change. Your essence is always going to be that. Well, I've always, one of the reasons I called the book going the wrong way, but a very obvious reason was that we went, we left 
Belfast to go to Australia and ended up in Argentina. So you can't go much further, but yes, <laughs> it's also realizing the journey and also in life, sometimes going the, the way that everybody else isn't going. It can give you much more fulfillment, much more enjoyment rather than going the well-trodden route. Started to realize that that is the way I have lived my life. I've done things in an awkward way. Very often people would call them awkward, but very often it's much more fulfilling to do it the difficult way rather than the easy way. Yes. And so, Chris, that was in 79 to 81, I guess it was your trip. Yeah. And then you didn't touch the motorcycle for 43 years. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I still kept the motorbike running and kept it going. And in fact, in 2004, I decided I just got divorced and I needed to get a bit of a change of life. So I took a head staggers, as we would say in, in Ireland, and headed east from Belfast to see if I could get to Russia. And I actually made it to St. Petersburg 10 days later. I left the bike in, in Helsinki in Finland, just above there, over the winter, and came back, drove down to Moscow with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and drove back from Moscow through uh, Poland and uh, Germany. So that was quite an adventure as well. It was uh, a journey you wouldn't be able to make these days. Wow, interesting. And tell me about the friends you made on your travels during the 79 and 80. It was the lovely thing about writing the book, as I say, it's brought everything back to life. A lot of things I'd forgotten about, but I had written a lot of notes. In fact, I started to write a book when I came home. But there's a guy called Ted Simon wrote a book. He'd done the journey similar to mine three or four years before me. He was a journalist and a professional writer. I thought, well, there's no point in writing it similar sort of things and just put mine on the shelf, my notes back and forgot about it. So it was lovely taking the notes out, the pages that I'd written when I was 22, think back to what was my life and what was going through my head at that stage. An amazing thing was just reading about the journey and looking at the photographs that I'd taken, sort of brought everything back very vividly. And the more I wrote my manuscript, the more the story became things that I'd forgotten about came back. And so we were like, if you meet somebody you haven't seen that for a long time and they tell you about something you did 20 years ago, you think you've forgotten and then it all comes back. It's all in your brain somewhere, but it's just been buried under heaps of what's happened since. But it's lovely to be able to go back in my mind and, and relive and regurgitate all the information that was in there. People have said, how do you remember it all? But it's, does, it's everything you've done in the past is in your back of your head somewhere. It's just a matter of finding it. With Facebook and Instagram and everything else, I've been able to reconnect with a lot of people that I met 40 years ago, such as Alex in Israel. The Scots guy that I traveled with at that time had given me his name, an address in a little country, in a little town in uh, Aberdeenshire in Scotland. His name was Jeff, and he hadn't even given me his surname. So I went last year, I went to the town, and nobody knew him, obviously. But the postman just said, well, there used to be a guy called Godfrey with a motorbike. Oh, that's very strange, a different name. But she had his number and his address, so I called up. It was about 100 miles away. I drove up the next day. And this guy opened the door and he smiled at me and I said, I recognize you. And it was just the only thing I recognized was the smile. <laughs> and he said, you're Chris Donaldson, aren't you? I said, yeah. I said, there's a book you're in. And it was amazing to say, tracked him down. He hadn't even given me a surname and his first name was, he was so embarrassed about being called Godfrey, he changed his name to Jeffrey. <laughs> but I still tracked him down. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I guess not too many people are on a motorcycle. No. And other people as well. I met friends from Vancouver, somebody I traveled with in Africa. And what happened to that friend who helped you in the train station in Buenos Aires? Well, funny if I haven't been able to. I've got their name and address, but I haven't been able to contact them. How long do you stay with them? I stayed about a week just to get the bike organized, to get shipped back and so on. So I stayed from quite a good length of time. But I was never very good at writing letters in the past, so I never kept... I think ladies are much better at keeping in touch with people, but blokes were just generally 
don't contact each other when between meeting. But the lovely thing about that is if you get on with somebody 40 years ago, you can meet up with them and you just fall into the same yes. routine, the same, your your personalities. If you got on before, you'll get on now and you're, you're able to just continue on as if you've had a two-week break, you know? Yes, because the essence of people never change. Yes. There, this yeah. is my belief. When you came back, how was that? Were you completely a different person, seen Belfast differently? I think it was a different person. I found it very difficult to start because it's so many things that happened to me when I'd been away. You come back and it's nothing had happened at all in Belfast. It was still the same old troubles. Same old, everybody was doing the same old thing. But it was, I'd borrowed a lot of money to get back and to get the motorbike back. So I had to go to work and well, I fell into life, took us, moved on, and I still managed a few adventures along the way. But it, it certainly gave me, being traveling on my own, it gave me the uh, strength of character and strength of mind to be able to do things in business and in personal, to meet problems that you meet in everyday life and to battle my way through and to, to do things in a slightly different way than, I, than most people would. So I've had a bit of a Different sort of life story, I suppose. I've worked in Dubai. I worked in Dubai for eight years. I run a business, a furniture business in Belfast and London and Dublin. I've worked for myself quite a lot. And people that have traveled, people that I met, most of the people I've met have, funny enough, have had similar, have usually ended up working for themselves, not fitted into the, the groove the, so that society has made for us quite as well as, as people who, who've been staying at home all the time. I wouldn't say it's particularly better for you because it's made my life more difficult in many ways, but it's made it more interesting. Yes, more difficult. I can understand that too. Do you understand how people want to be in one place and no move? Yes, it's a, well, I say it's a very easy habit to get into because life's much easier when you are in one place. You get to your family, you've got your friends around you and it's, it's a very warm and cozy and it's, it's easy to do that. I think people who travel certainly are more, not anxious, but more maybe unhappy with their lives more. They need to travel. They need to life to change the situation around them. They're probably not as content as, as people who are happy mm-hmm. staying in the same place all the time. So I'm not saying it's a better way to be because they're probably, not, as I say, not as peace with themselves as other people would be. Ireland has always been a place that people leave from because it's for economic reasons, political reasons, whatever. But again, there's people here that I've known for years since I went to school. One of the reasons I decided to travel at the age of 64, I got a little bit, let's say, worried talking to my friends who'd taken early retirement and they seemed to spend most of their time in the garden or maybe playing golf twice a week. And I thought, I'm really not ready for that, even though maybe not peak physical fitness anymore, but really not prepared to except that retirement is going to be like that. Yes. So that's one of the reasons I, in my back of my mind, I wanted to head off and prove to myself that I could still do what I could do when I was 21. Yes, because you're different. I guess I actually succeeded. I succeeded in getting to Australia this time and I wasn't able to do that before. I know, instead of taking care of your garden, you can take care of your garden when you're 80. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been interesting, as I say, lots of, interesting in lots of ways, but tr- comparing traveling at the end of my working life to when I was in the beginning of my working life. Obviously, there's the um, physical differences, such as the internet and the roads are much better. They um, have more money. I can stay in a nice hotel now when I stop rather than having to camp side of the road. So it's much more pleasant in such a lot, a lot of ways. But other ways, I got to Nepal and went into a little traveler's bar and you could see there's bench loads of young kids or kids in their 20s that have been backpacking and traveling around and 40 years ago I would have joined them and said hi guys where have you been where are you going and tell them 
So I thought, as a 64-year-old, they'd probably run away. Sat down and sort of, there's granddad joining us here. What does he want, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I think that is an inspiring thing to see you that you did it and now you're doing it again. Yeah. That now you have the technology is in your favor. You have more money to stay in um, better hotels that are done full of cockroaches. What else is different? Well, I think my mentality, I suppose, and which is a good way and a bad way. I mean, when you're 21, you're keen to learn about people. You're keen to learn about much more open to learning about the people and the cultures you meet. Uh-huh. I sort of frustrated myself a couple of times because I was in positions to maybe stay with a family or whatever. And if I was 21, I would love to have stayed there and learn about what the way of life is in Iran or Turkey or wherever. Whereas partially due to my Oh, I couldn't be bothered. I just want to get a good night's sleep, but probably more to do with as is being lack of energy, lack of quest to learn about people as well. It's just I'd go to a hotel and lie down and go to sleep, I suppose. <laughs> I didn't have the energy to go to do anything else. That, that's probably one of the bad sides about being being older. You've less you've less a less inquisitive mind to learn about different cultures and different people. Huh. Yeah, because you probably th- we we probably think well we kind of know more these yeah, days. Been there, done that. Interesting. That I think that's fascinating. Now that you know you have Parkinson, how are you taking that? Are you feeling like you have to do all these things? Hurry up, or or you just embracing it in a different way? Um, I'm not embracing it at all. I'm deciding to fight against it as much as I can. I suppose the luckily this or, or unluckily the. Um, most of the treatments say exercise and keeping active is the main thing you can do for it. And I certainly oh, good. find that very successful. It's, it's staving off the uh, much progress in it. It's been pretty, not static, but very still moving. So doctor said to me, with any luck, you'll die before it becomes very serious. Hopefully, I don't know, my father lived in 98, so who knows. But I'm not trying not to get too depressed about it. But it hasn't affected me too much. I was able to ride a motorbike and handle any of the obstacles which came along along the way. I suppose a couple of times it stopped and I would maybe have a shaky hand and people would think I was maybe worried about something if it was going through a border. You feel like saying, well, actually, I just have a shaky hand. I'm not actually that scared, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the guy's got an AK-47 pointing at you. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's been, I mean, some things are exactly the same. Really, traveling on your own on a motorbike brings out the best in a lot of people that you meet. Everybody is interested in motorbikes in some way. They have a, an emotion to them. People they usually like them or they, maybe they hate them. But they, or if you're in a car, you're you're just not somebody else in the car. But if you're in a big motorbike, you do attract attention and you get talking to people, which is, which is nice. And even if you're on your own, you're never on your own for long. Yes, I heard that doesn't seem like it but it's a very sociable way of, of traveling although in places like india it kind of attracts too much attention because everywhere you stop you're just surrounded by hundreds of people looking for looking for money because you're obviously a very wealthy guy compared to them no it's interesting comparing the 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 attitude between being a, a young guy and an old guy a couple of times i would have stop and take my helmet off and you could see the shock on people's faces whenever they expected to see a 20 odd year old and a young on a motorbike and to see my gray hair and a crinkly face and sort of you could see them physically surprised of oh, what's this guy doing riding around the world on a motorbike in the 60s you know a guy in india said to me when i told him what age i was he said mr in england in india when you're in your 60s you just sit at home and look after the grandkids you don't go anywhere you don't even go to the shops wow that's <laughs> something to look forward to <laughs> <laughs> no, I suppose one of the things I've learned is uh, if you put your mind to anything, you you can do whatever you want. Writing a book, I was never very intellectually minded at school. I managed to scrape through college and always at the back of the bottom of the class. 
given a pen and paper or computer, now I was able to put together a book, which two years has got some like 900 positive five-star reviews on Amazon. It's selling very well around the world, which if you told me when I was at school, I would end up writing a best-selling novel or best-selling book, I would have just laughed at you. So if I can do that, really anybody can do it. You know, you just need to put your mind to it. Probably one of the best, biggest things I've learned is you can, if you do put your mind to whatever you want to do, if you really want to do it long enough, hard enough, you will be able to do it. Yes, I agree with you that that's true. I mean, you have to have the, the willingness to want to do it, right? And sometimes a bit of stubbornness. Yeah. Chris, you have kids. If you, one of your kids says that to you, he wants to go around the world in a motorcycle, how would you take that? I'd probably do everything I could to put them off. <laughs> really? Well, it's it has its dangers, there's no doubt. I've been very lucky. It's obviously something I'm reasonably good at. I know a lot of people have tried it and done it and haven't succeeded. But no, I've, I mean, I've obviously got two girls and whatever they want to do, they will do. They're both very stubborn and single-minded a bit like myself so they're probably what i say won't make any difference anyway so i'll just have to support them do you have any idea if any of them are going to be adventurous like you well one of my, my girls has just finished her master's in london so she's got her world sitting in front of her and the other one is playing sandy in greece in her school play today so after we finish this call i'm going to watch watch her do that so um she's quite a quite a character quite a strong character as well so the beauty about watching kids at that age is their whole world is ahead of them uh, and you can share in their excitement. Yes, that's true. That's true. Well, the, the whole world is also on our hands now because you are retired and and you can do whatever you want. It does annoy me. We talk to people that are retired and they, they, they view it as a, a winding down, as a this is the end of their lives. They've, they've stopped having to think. They've stopped having to concentrate on anything and you can just see they're nearly deteriorating i think once you stop using your brain using your stop using your physical being you will use lose the the ability to do the things you want to do so i think it is important in your older age this is the first day of the rest of your life and make the best of the best of what's ahead of you yes that's true that's true and i, and I think that you should keep busy one needs to keep busy using our mind so that we don't age because it's the day that you stop, you know, using it that when you start deteriorating, that, like you said. Yeah, no, definitely from a physical point of view, I think it's, it's well known that if you don't keep yourself fit, it's harder to get, pick, get back up to your fitness levels again. But certainly with your brain, if you stop using your brain, it does go dead after a while. You stop, you stop being able to, to do things. So I think it's important to keep active and to keep something difficult, keep a, have, a, have a challenge that you can concentrate on and, and drive yourself forward to. So Chris, can you tell us the name of your book again? It's called Going the Wrong Way. Uh, it's on Amazon, um, ebook, audiobook, hardback, and stuff, uh, and paperback. Yes, we will put it in your show notes. Thank you so much, Chris. It was amazing that you're putting out there that, and I definitely you need a second book to continue this. Well, we're only halfway through the story, really. So maybe get in the Guinness Book of Records for the longest journey, longest time anybody's taken to get to Australia. That's true. That's true. The longest record for anybody to get to Australia. How many? How many years then? Forty-three years. Forty-three. <laughs> <laughs> you could have done that walking, maybe sooner. <laughs> I could do. <laughs> <laughs> you never know hopefully make it to Vancouver as well on the way through yes well let us know thank you thanks very much great thank you for sharing your story thank you very much thanks for having me talk soon thanks 
I hope you enjoyed it today's episode. I am Daniela and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.